Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews, and welcome to this special episode of Fully Booked, recorded live at the Texas Book Festival in Austin on October 26th. At 2 p.m. Central in the C-SPAN 2 Book TV tent, I had the honor of conversing with Samantha Power, whose phenomenal autobiography, The Education of an Idealist, should be required reading for anyone who wants to make a difference in the world. The Education of an Idealist is the story of an outsider who became the ultimate Washington insider, serving at the side of President Barack Obama on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. From 2009 to 2013, she served as our country's 28th Ambassador to the United Nations. Power was born in Ireland and immigrated to the United States at age nine. She began her career as a journalist, a war correspondent, reporting from Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. She became an activist and author, and her first book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003. Power earned a BA from Yale University and a JD from Harvard Law School, and today lives in Concord, Massachusetts with her husband, Cass Sunstein, and their two young children. After this brief indie interview, we'll play the conversation. A.K. Faulkner, an England-based writer, is the author of Jack of Thorns, a debut fantasy set in San Diego about Lawrence Riley and Quentin Ichabod Darcy, two men struggling to control their budding superpowers and an evil deity they need to stop. Our reviewer says, striking prose and characters make this opening fantasy installment worthwhile. In this sponsored interview, we talk with A.K. about her book. My name is Katerina Pappas, and I work in the indie department. Hi, AK, and welcome to Fully Booked. Hi, thank you. What was your inspiration for this book? So I really love urban fantasy. I always have, ever since I was a wee nipper. Um, And I love the idea, kind of started with Buffy, um, where you get urban fantasy, you get all these standard horror tropes in a way that are taking place in a lovely, sunny place. Uh, And so I wanted to have an urban fantasy that was not set in Chicago or Los Angeles, but actually set in a Southern Californian city that was next to the ocean and had beautiful views. Uh, And so that was basically the the start of it. Mm -hmm. And Lawrence is struggling with drug addiction and Quentin is a famous British Earl who flees to the United States. Will you tell us about creating these two characters? So I very much like the whole fish out of water thing. And I wanted to create two characters that would bounce off each other. And so there's a lot of contrast. There's um, addiction on both sides. Um, We've got Lawrence, who's a heroin addict, and Quentin, who's an alcoholic. And together, they they kind of find each other and help each other grow and mature. Mm -hmm. And will you tell us about Jack, the book's villain, and what went into writing that character? So I use a lot of British mythology in the whole series, and Jack comes from the Green Man. And there was a lot of research involved because the UK has a lot of regional myths and legends, uh, as well as um, some larger folklore that stretches over 
larger areas. And so there was a lot of research into digging into which god I wanted to use and how exactly he would manifest and so on. Mm -hmm. And the story flips between Lawrence and Quentin's points of view. Why did you decide to do this? I think it was absolutely necessary because both men are very bad at seeing themselves, but they're very perceptive. So they were very good at seeing each other. And so from Lawrence's point of view, we get to see Quentin, whereas from Quentin's point of view, we get to see Lawrence. Where in their, when you're in their own heads, they're very bad at understanding themselves. And are you working on anything new now? I am. I'm working on the seventh book in the series, uh, which will be out in November, but not in paperback until the new year. Great. Thanks so much for talking with us about your book. If you're just joining the podcast, you can find Jack of Thorns at online retailers and by request at your local bookstore. I am absolutely honored to be in conversation with Samantha Power today. Samantha Power is a professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School. From 2013 to 2017, she served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and a member of President Obama's cabinet. From 2009 to 2013, she served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. She began her career as a journalist, reporting from places such as Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. And she was the founding executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School. Her book, A Problem from Hell, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003. She is, yeah, it's a big one. It was a while ago. (laughs) She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Chasing the Flame, Sergio Vieira de Mello and the Fight to Save the World. Her most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, The Education of an Idealist, was published by HarperCollins in September of this year, and I just learned that it is shortlisted for the Irish Book Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And one more time, let's do it one more time. Please join me in welcoming Samantha Power to all. Thank you. Wow. There's a reason this is my third trip to Austin in like three weeks. Just for the record, y'all are incredibly warm and I'm very grateful. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to start off this session uh, with a brief reading. Yes. Uh, So I want to just set the stage for our conversation. And I thought uh, the reading that I would do today is one that speaks to the challenges that we're facing, figuring out how to engage with people uh, who we disagree with vehemently. And so this is a scene from a chapter called Upside Down Land. And it's about my relationship with the Russian ambassador. I had invested long hours in forging a constructive working relationship with Vitaly Cherkin, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations. Because Russia held one of five vetoes at the Security Council, its vote was critical if we were to get the Council to send peacekeepers to conflict areas, impose sanctions on wrongdoers, or even just condemn a coup. In order for the UN to have a meaningful impact on issues of war and peace, the United States and Russia had to be willing to make deals. Our two countries did not have the option of remaining at arm's length. 
Vitaly had only recently gotten to know me during our negotiations over the Syria chemical weapons resolution that was dismantling the vast majority of Assad's stockpile. But I had known Vitaly far longer, having watched him in action when he served as the Russian envoy to Bosnia in the 1990s during the war. I had occasionally been in the pack of journalists surrounding him in Sarajevo, notebook and tape recorder in hand. Vitali always seemed to relish these engagements, eloquently delivering a predictably pro-Serb line while simultaneously insisting upon his own complete objectivity. I remember being struck by the fact that his English was so fluid that he quoted lines from American movies and songs and even made English puns. But something else impressed me more. After the February 1994 massacre of Sarajevo market goers, Vitali had reportedly been pivotal in convincing the Bosnian Serbs to move their heavy weapons away from the Bosnian capital. This bought Sarajevans a reprieve of many months. To me, it also indicated a promising independence streak. Vitali became Russia's UN ambassador in 2006 and seemed a permanent fixture. He had sparred with my predecessor, Susan Rice, when she'd been ambassador, but they had become friendly. In their last UN meeting together, she had roared with laughter when he presented her with a mock Security Council statement expressing relief at her departure. The mock-up also sent condolences to that other Security Council, the National Security Council, she would soon chair in her capacity as National Security Advisor. I'd already come to respect Vitali's talents as a negotiator. He brought procedural wisdom and textual creativity to our Syria chemical weapons discussions. But above all, he listened with careful intensity. When he wasn't melodramatically storming out of a meeting, he was good at bridging gaps. Significantly, he also val valued U.S.-Russian cooperation. From his time as an interpreter in arms control negotiations during the Cold War, he had drawn a lesson. Even when Russia's overall relationship with the U.S. was strained, our two countries could carve out discrete areas for progress and try to build momentum. I knew he often pushed for compromises that Moscow was disinclined to make. Vitaly and I always took each other's calls, and for the three and a half years we worked together, we would do our best to reconcile positions that on their face looked irreconcilable. As I got to know Vitaly, I naturally wondered how he could stand working for Putin and why he hadn't resigned somewhere along the way. Even though people who crossed Putin often ended up jailed or even killed, I didn't think he stayed because he was intimidated. Instead, the most memorable stanzas from Tennyson's The Charge of the Light Brigade would often come to mind. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Vitaly had been a child actor in Soviet films and had come of age during the height of the Cold War competition with the U.S. Like many proud Russians, he embraced Putin's goal of raising Russia from its knees. Even if Russia's leaders, if the Russian leader's actions made him uncomfortable, he would go on serving his country. U.N. culture was drearily buttoned up. Whether diplomats bloviated or spoke in monotone, they hewed closely to generic talking points. Some had been receiving instructions from their capitals for so long that they seemed to have suspended thinking for themselves. Vitali was different. He had a point of view on everything from the sources of Alexander Ovechkin's greatness as a hockey player 
to what China's rise would mean for the world. Even when discussing issues on which Russia had little council support, he seemed to delight in playing the role of underdog. He was also a masterful storyteller with an often irreverent sense of humor. When I once went on too long speaking before the council, he responded, quote, after hearing all that the permanent representative of the United States felt she needed to share with us today, I am tempted to read my statement twice, <laughs> end quote. On another occasion, when we were arguing after a council session, I told him that I knew he had mixed motives, half sincere and half ulterior. No, he countered. We are fully sincere about achieving our ulterior motive. <laughs> I invited him and Irina to my parents' home in Yonkers for Thanksgiving. Irina is his wife, making him the only UN colleague who ever entered my wild Irish family sanctum. When they arrived, Irina immediately sat down on the carpet and began playing with my children while my stepfather, Eddie, and Vitali talked Russian history and literature. When we went around the table to describe what we were most thankful for, Vitali said, quote, peace between our two countries. Whatever happens, we must preserve that. It was no fun before, end quote. I liked and respected Vitali, but I also spent most of my time at the United Nations in pitched public battle with him. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I have two thoughts in my head, one serious, one not. Where do you want to go? Uh, not. Okay. <laughs> um, when somebody says to me, 550-page political Sorry. autobiography, <laughs> I don't think funny. This is a funny book. Why was it important to you, I'm assuming that it was, to imbue this with your sense of humor? I've never been asked that question before. Uh, I was trying to offer a recounting of these various stages of my life and my career in a manner that was as true to life as possible. And growing up in an Irish family where you can't get in a word at dinner if you don't have something funny or interesting to say, recounting as true to life as I could entailed recounting the humor uh, as well as sometimes the poignancy and the sadness. And I, I really wanted to render also the later phases when you get into darker topics, uh, you know, like the policy issues we're dealing with uh, when I'm in the Obama administration, like Ebola or Syria. But even as you're managing those issues, it's like all of you who, who are dealing with serious things in your lives, there's still human beings who are, who are attempting to figure out what to do, still human beings who, when you feel like you're about to tear your hair out, somebody will say something in real life, that's very funny. Um, and it'll break the light in the mood and maybe even un unlock sort of thoughts or, or banter or comfort that then creates a space where other people will feel more comfortable in putting forward ideas that they might have kept to themselves. So basically, I was trying to make it as true to life as I could so that it would the story of whether growing up in a pub in Dublin or being a war correspondent or being an activist or working in the government that you didn't have to be or do any of those things to be able to see the kind of universal truths in, in what was happening. So, so it, it, it was life, and I thought as true to life as I could make it, uh, that meant including um, as much humor as, 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 I, as I could remember. And, and that was dependent a lot on my journals and, 
and my memory. Uh, so there, a lot more funny happened in my life than you'll actually see in the book, just so you know. Do you want to share one of those stories with us now? With the one that isn't in the the ones yeah. that are in the, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe later, maybe, maybe, maybe over maybe a not. beer. I mean, I mean, part of the challenge in writing a memoir is I, I speak as if I know what I'm talking about. I've just written a memoir, so I guess on one level that qualifies me. But um, this was very, very new to me. You know, we have a saying that I've heard in Ireland. You know, that Irish people have trouble using the first person, even in therapy. <laughs> And certainly that was my experience of therapy, as you'll read in the book, my, my challenges with therapy. But as I wrote, I was initially pretty, pretty buttoned up. And the idea of not only describing what happened at the time, you know, I'm used to being in my former journalistic days, a narrative journalist. So I'm used to trying to make the plot move. And, and my books don't tend to be all that short, but they tend to, to, to move, I hope, uh, they do. And, and propel people forward. Uh, and I'm very sensitive to that as I'm editing and writing. So I'd always been kind of narrative-driven and make people compulsively want to turn the page. That, that had always been my objective as a writer. But suddenly I would, I would hand these pages over to my husband or to close friends, and they'd say, you know, this isn't like writing for The New Yorker, The Atlantic. You have to tell us what's actually going on inside of you at the same time. And I'm like, that's bullshit. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I just... It just needs to move. It needs to not get like sidetracked and you know going meta. And I, luckily, I'd kept a journal for all these years, and so I had. I, I, I w- it would have been very hard for me retrospectively to project backwards onto my past self as to what I felt discovering a mass grave in Darfur or getting dumped, you know, in my uh, from someone I really liked. Or it would have been very hard. But I had these journals, so I was able, in a way, to be a reporter into my own uh, subconscious or into my own reflections, at least emotional reflections at the time of these different things. And so I, I you know, I, I, I began to open up and began to do what you're, you really do, I think do need to do in a memoir, which is offer as much insight as you can into the, the persons who happens, unfortunately, to be me, but into one's inner life. So I did that. But then I lost complete sense of where the line should be drawn. And, and, and then, you know, people are reading and they're like, no, 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 no. You know, there is a dignity constraint, you know, to this, to this enterprise. Like, really? Um, and so when you ask, like, what's not in the book, I mean, uh, you know, as, as is famously said about memoir, just because something happened... Uh, doesn't mean everybody else would find it interesting to learn about. Just because it's interesting to you doesn't mean it's interesting to anybody else. And so, you know, subjecting whatever you're including to that criteria, um, you know, like I had thousands of humorous conversations, or hundreds at least, with my children about Putin. Uh, But you didn't need to hear about all of those conversations. You just needed to get a sense that Putin was uh, an active part of how I described uh, you know, dynamics in my son's classroom. Uh, you, you, only need, you only need, like, one or two anecdotes uh, for that to be evident. You don't, you don't need to be in my life entirely. I'll spare you at least some of that. <laughs> well, I see our objective as a duo today to try to entice everybody out in the crowd to read this book compulsively. Therefore, I think I would like to, if we could, touch on some of the major, you know, parts of your life, starting with something we breezed by a little bit earlier, which was growing up in a Dublin pub? Um, yeah, and I didn't sleep there, so to be clear, I was, uh, but my, I'm from Ireland originally, both my parents are Irish, and my mother, her whole life growing up in County Cork in Ireland, wanted to be a medical doctor, 
but she at that that age group she was born in 1943 uh, that generation was not encouraged or not even allowed to do science and so when it came time to go to college which she became the the first in her uh, among her sisters in her in her uh, big Irish Catholic family to do she was told not to do medicine because she didn't have the science background so she decided to get the science background in college, uh, and in Ireland you do medicine as a as an undergrad degree. You know that's when you start, and so you become a doctor earlier. So she got her BS in in uh, Bachelor of Science, and then she got a PhD actually in biochemistry. She's a complete trailblazer, my hero. Very funny, uh, it must be said as well, and a great athlete and amazing. She played field hockey and tennis and squash for Ireland. Um, so really a remarkable woman. But all she wanted to do was be a doctor and, and see patients. And so not long after I was born, what in those days especially was very, very late, she decided to go back to medical school. So because she was in medical school, this is in Dublin, uh, I spent a lot of those years with my father, who was immensely loving, um, full of opinion and ideas, but was an alcoholic and, and kind of an alcoholic almost as a vocation. I mean, he would go, his business, uh, he had been a dentist and his practice had kind of fallen apart and he just went to the pub, uh, one particular pub, which I write a lot about in the book, uh, called Hardigan's, and I was his sidekick. He would pick me up after school and I would go with my Enid Blyton mystery novels or my Nancy Drew or whatever and I would just read in the basement of this pub and, you know, my mother, of course, was alert to the risks of this, but it was culturally felt different than that it than it would feel I'm sure to my mother today or to me and so as she was trying to you know do her residency and and doing all that is required to become a doctor uh I was living a very close relationship with my father in in this uh what in retrospect um was probably not the ideal uh environment for a child what brought you to the United States and what did you expect to find so the alcohol took its toll on my parents' marriage, and my mother and father wanted to split up from each other, uh, but my mother particularly uh, was uh, not a fan of the pub or the drink and wasn't a fan at a certain point, really drew her line also when it came to me and my younger brother spending so much time there. and so. But also she had met a, uh, a man she did want to be with, uh, who has been my stepfather now for 40 years. His name is Eddie, and you'll, he's very, very funny. He's the funniest character in the book as a whole. And a great Irish, sort of one of those storytellers who, before they get to the punchline, just the way they tell the story, people are you know have tears streaming down their faces. She fell in love with him uh, working at the Meath Hospital in Dublin. And that all would be fine in most countries uh, at that time, in, at least in most Western democracies, but in Ireland you weren't allowed to get divorced. So the only way to really go further, I think, also in in the field of medicine that she was most interested in, kidney transplants, but also the only way really to, to separate, to sever from my father in the way that she wanted to, to be with my now stepfather, was to move to America. Because when you come here, if you're here for long enough, you can actually get a divorce. And, and so that was a major factor. And, and ulti- there was... Subsequent to that, about 10 years later, there was a referendum on divorce in Ireland. And um, believe it or not, that referendum failed. Uh, uh, pretty, it was close, but not that close. Um, and many of my mother's sisters, I remember my mother just pulling her hair out, 
because uh, several of her sisters uh, voted against divorce, if you can believe it, even though they were very close to her and extremely sympathetic with what she had gone through. Uh, and their, their line, or at least one of their lines, was, ah, sure, I had to stay with my fella. You know, everybody else should have to do the same. <laughs> so there's a bit of that. Uh, and, but then ultimately, as, as some of you know, it, it did pass when, when it was given a second chance, and now people are able to follow their hearts and, and do also what at times is, is best for their, for their children. But it was, it was a combination of divorce and ambition, professional medical ambition. But when we came, I would have had no idea we were, we were emigrating. I mean, it was, I, I don't know if my mother, I, I think even she would have been years later before she realized we're, we're not going back. Right. You achieved academically, you got a haircut. You practiced your American <laughs> accent. You love sports. You followed the teams religiously. Any in particular? I moved to Pittsburgh in 1979 when the Pirates were winning the World Series and the Steelers were winning the Super Bowl. My way of fitting in was to chop off all my... I had long, I had a long ponytail, red hair, Irish hair, and I just went, boof, uh, to look like the boys in the neighborhood. And I memorized, learned everything there was to know about baseball statistics and RBIs and ERA, and they didn't, I guess, didn't have a slugging percentage back then, but I was, I traded in baseball cards. I was a hustler in the neighborhood. My teeth rotted with the pink gum that some of you remember from the Topps baseball cards. Yeah, a lot of knowing uh, regret about that pink gum. Uh, But that was my, it was an American, I just threw myself into this American life. Fast forward a bit through this American life. Um, what turned you on to the idea that current in- events were important? Um, well, I, I'll share this story, and, and uh, I, you know, I would say even in my in my 20s, I probably would have looked back on this moment uh, as pivotal. Uh, but actually, when I went back to my journals to really examine it in depth, I learned that the moment I'm about to describe at the time was almost swallowed up in self-doubt. So the moment was sitting, taking notes on a Braves, Atlanta Braves, San Francisco Giants game at the CBS Sports Affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I'd ultimately gone to high school. My mother, when she had finished her residency here, which she had to redo, moved to Atlanta to go and practice uh, as a kidney transplant physician as, with, with Eddie, who was in the same field. And, and so they moved, we moved. And the summer after my freshman year in college, I went back to Atlanta and I got this dream internship because I wanted to be a sportscaster at that point. Uh, so there I was in a dream situation, taking notes on a baseball game. What could be a better way to spend your summer? Uh, and in a video booth, and it, one of those booths where you have the TV screens all around, and it was CBS, so it was all the, their feeds from around the world, from Moscow, from London, from Paris, from Cairo, and from Beijing. And, and the, the feed from Beijing had been, in the previous days, depicting these peaceful protests by students my age contesting, you know, the form of rule that the Chinese Communist Party was um, was exercising, asking for freedom of speech and freedom of association. You know, some of you remember these protests. What I'd forgotten even is how long they were allowed to go on without uh, being suppressed. But the day that I happened to be there taking notes on this particular game so as to cut the highlights for the news the footage of the crackdown in Tiananmen Square was broadcast on the Beijing feed. And I was there, and again, in my, in my memory of this moment, it was absolutely crystal clear that 
you know, I was going to go forth and, and, you know, resolve to do something, try to do something uh, bigger and different in my life. In fact, while I remember it like it was five minutes ago, uh, my journals are all filled with this recounting of what I'd seen, but very quickly followed by, but what do I have to offer? You know, I'm a college, for, just after my freshman year in college, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything about this, but I, I was, for the very first time in that moment, asking the question of what the U.S. government was going to do, what the world, in quotes, or the international community, a phrase uh, that I, I have forsworn long ago, because it really ends up just being the sum of the, the countries and the leaders and the social movements within it, uh, the international community. But nonetheless, at the time, I was asking, what, what is someone going to do? But I, it wasn't, at the time a moment of great resolve myself because I think that would have been in t- just way too presumptuous and, and, and sort of would have been in, involved me putting myself in a kind of galaxy far, far away. I was so ill-equipped to even know what was happening in the world, never mind to think that there might be some pathway after college you know, to make a difference. And so all that really happened in the moment out of that is I went back to campus to, in my sophomore year I became. I actually did, as a result of this, become a more serious student, become much, much bookier, more um, interested in history formally and politics. I took classes of the of the kind I hadn't been taking before, and I ended my subscription to USA Today, which I know that's no knock on USA Today. In fairness, the only reason I'd even read it my freshman year uh, was I used to clip with my fingers the red section, which was the sports section. And I would toss the rest of the paper into the recycling bin, bin, which says nothing actually about the quality of what was in USA Today at the time. It was more just my single-minded obsession with sports. So I changed my subscription to the New York Times. And then, and I wish I had some of these newspapers, but I would underline every article and like the names of leaders. And I knew geography well, because in Ireland, you kind of always had to prepare for the fact that you were going to have to emigrate. Like there was just culturally a sense... (laughs) That you had to know where the other countries were. Uh, but, like, world leaders or the history of those... Co- you know, I didn't know any of that. And so I would, I would... You know, I was very motivated to learn more. But, again, it was would have been a big leap to imagine that one day there'd be a path to do something in this world. So it was... The idea to learn more present, but the idea to see more took a little time to arise. And one note that sounds throughout this book, whether you're a war correspondent in faraway lands or you're working at the UN, is the importance of bearing witness, actually seeing, like, feet on the ground with your own eyes or somebody on the team, seeing, like, what is going on. Why is that of such crucial importance, not just to policymaking, but to being a part of humanity? Yeah, I mean, I really developed, um, well, I should say that in my early 20s, my first kind of really embarking on trying to do something at the margins to make some difference somewhere was to go off to the Balkans and to become, a, I became a freelance journalist, the story uh, of which I tell uh, in the book, which involved doing ter- a terribly unethical thing, um, stealing stationery uh, late at night uh, from the office building where I was working and basically forging a credentials letter so that I could get a UN press pass in order to be able to go and do the right thing. So you can see uh, the hypocrisy 
of of that and and how single minded again I, I was becoming in this in this goal of learning more and I you know by then I was already trying to learn Serbo Croatian and learning about what was happening but I desperately wanted to get over there and my only path was as a freelance journalist uh, so I mention it in the context of your question only because I think in my early twenties to have that experience of 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 witnessing what was unfolding in a major ethnic conflict, you know, with a genocide being perpetrated against people on the basis of their ethnicity and religion, that once you've had that experience of seeing it with your own eyes, you become, I don't want to say skeptical of secondhand reporting. I mean, I still devour uh, every page of the New York Times uh, as I would have as, it, as well before I went to, to the field. You know, I'm no, no longer underlining in quite the same way, but I do keep notes occasionally on my phone. I'll have you know. Uh, but... But I think there's just that standard of, you know, to, to, to understand human consequences um, and to do so not by telephone, you know, not, not in a game of telephone where people are mediating, but when you can, to be there and to hear those experiences yourself. And so I, when I was in government, and ironically, here I was finally, years later, after we're talking about, but uh, working for the Obama administration as, a, as the president's human rights advisor, there I was at the White House advising this remarkable person who really wanted to integrate human rights at a higher level than, than human rights has tended to be integrated in foreign policymaking. And God knows we were not perfect, uh, and nor was the process perfect, as I write about in the book. But nonetheless, he wanted that perspective. So here, here there I am, ready to offer that perspective, but I can't get permission. Nobody at the White House will give me permission to travel. And so I start going completely out of my mind, and I'm, I'm like, I'll pay. And they're like, sorry, ma'am, you, you, you can't pay. You know, if you're traveling on behalf of the United States of America, the United States government, you know, has to support that trip. I'm like, but I can't, how, what am I going to do? I'm here, and I, I mean, how am I going to understand exactly how this refugee situation is playing out, or what kind of peacekeeping unit is needed, and what to do about the recruitment of child soldiers if I'm just reading, you know, accounts that don't ask the questions that I would have posed. So eventually I start getting permission and start being able to travel. But this spirit of get close, you know, I, I really did animate my work. And when I was UN ambassador, it was much easier because I was more, I was within the cabinet. So Obama was very much my boss, but at least within the U.S. mission to the UN, I was my own boss and had more flexibility on where I was able to travel. So when the Ebola epidemic would hit, I could bring that spirit and say, okay, let's go. Let's go and see actually how our health workers and our soldiers and how countries from all over the world are chipping in to try to deal with this epidemic. And let me bring that story less even to the UN, although there too, but also to the American public that is freaking out about the risks and and isn't aware of the, the heroism being exercised by our aid workers and our soldiers on the front line. Just one parenthetical, just because you have read so many books and, and everybody here, so many people here, I'm sure, have read this book as well. So I gave a commencement address at, um, where I made Get Close the kind of, you know, the mantra uh, in, in the remarks and gave a bunch of examples of, of using this spirit to try to enhance my diplomacy. And someone came up to me after and said, are you, do you, are you aware that that's Brian Stevenson's motto as well? So those of you, how many of you have read Just, Just Mercy? Yeah, if you haven't, I just, please buy that book before my book. It's so, it is so important. It is so special. Uh, but here he is, a person on the front lines of uh, defending people who are on death row, 
sometimes for crimes they haven't committed, almost always because of sentences that similarly situated people of means, uh, you know, or people who committed the same crime but had were of means, you know, would not have been sentences that they would not have received. Uh, and his spirit also is law was an abstraction until he began to get to know the people who would become his clients and so forth. And so I, I do think as an animating principle, it's one of the lessons that I've learned over the course of my education as an idealist. I have 550 more questions for you, one for every page. And um, I think we have time for about one more. I think the idea I'd like us to focus on to segue into the question and answer period is that of you went from outsider to insider. Who can serve our country in this way? Who would you like to see serving our country in this way? Well, this is going to become, I hope, a not theoretical question um, because, as you know, uh, our diplomatic corps, um, our scientific corps, you might call it, the people who work at agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency and elsewhere, uh, these agencies, these these actors on behalf of, of the United States, uh, on behalf of our interests and our people, uh, these entities have been decimated uh, by the last nearly three years of uh, President Trump's rule. And the last few weeks, of course, with the State Department haven't helped as Foreign Service officers and others are, are being ridiculed and uh, challenged on the basis of testimony they're taking under oath. Uh, and so I saw, and I tell this story in the book, the morning after the election in 2016, where so many of us were surprised by the outcome but I worried that some of the people on my staff, my, my most talented staff, whenever I did anything, basically the people who made me look uh, far better than I was, I was worried one of them, for example, my number one sanctions expert, um, had uh, been central to negotiating the terms of the Iran nuclear deal. Another of my star staff had been instrumental in helping get the Paris Agreement on climate across the finish line within the UN context becoming international law in the shortest time that any really environmental, major inter environmental treaty had, had come into force. And that, that matters because if Trump uh, does as we expect him to do in the next week, which is finally submit the withdrawal papers uh, to the United Nations, had my staff not worked as and others within the Obama administration not worked as hard as they did to make the Paris Treaty international law, which required 55% of countries accounting for more than 55% of emissions around the world to ratify, which is, tends to be a very long process. But had we not done that, this withdrawal that's about to come next week would have caused the whole Paris Agreement to unravel. So I have these individuals who worked on that. I have individuals who worked on promoting LGBT rights, uh, you know, working 24-7 around the clock to get benefits extended to UN employees who are in same-sex couples, et cetera. And so I'm thinking the morning after the election, what the hell is my, my <laughs> these poor, these people who've done all this work and their values and their belief about what, how our interests cut, they're, I'm going to have to buck them up to get them to stay. And so I called a town hall and they basically looked at me like I was a Martian and said, well, what do you mean? Of course we're going to stay. He doesn't have a lot of expertise, the president-elect, around him in foreign policy. And yeah, of course we believe in those things, but we understand that when an election happens, you know, we serve the Constitution, we serve the American people. We, we're going to get in the room and make the case for why we think those things are in our interests in the same way that we made the case against things you wanted to do or for things you wanted to do. 
and they they stayed and they stayed and they stayed throughout these very these very difficult and dark times and one by one they've gone <laughs> and they've left and so there will be so many vacancies there will be so many opportunities to serve and one of the things we're going to have to do is convince congress which i hope is not a divided congress for for many reasons but also for this reason but to change the rules and to allow people from the private sector people who've been teachers or who've served in the peace corps and gone on to other careers but who would still have so much to offer in the halls of of uh of the u.s government but to open our doors with careful vetting of course and to look for an alignment of skills and needs but we have a chance to build frankly the kind of modern diplomatic corps that we should have been building anyway but as with all large institutions it's very hard you know to turn the kind of aircraft carrier um as as rapidly as one needs but we we need a diplomatic corps that's that's fit for purpose and i think my own story of of finding it very challenging in the first instance to go from being an outsider to insider but also like we all do in our transitions at a certain point figuring out who to trust who to learn from you know how to not make the same mistake twice if you can help it um how to how to find sources of expertise that you yourself lack and 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 invite dissent that may not always be welcome but that is so critical to making the best uh kinds of decisions i think that kind of um experience that i've had is 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 one that is scalable i do think that that people who come from different backgrounds can enhance the diversity of perspectives uh and bring perspectives from the real world that sometimes uh get lost in these these sort of insulated bureaucracies but we're going to need it Thank you so much for your generosity with us here today. If we could extend that generosity to the Q&A portion of the program. Of If anyone from the audience has a question for Samantha Power, please go to the microphone. Good afternoon, Ambassador. Uh speaking of your time at the UN, why did you spy on American citizens without a warrant? I did not, sir. Thank you. Oh, I think you're lying. Thank you for your question. Next. Ambassador Power, can you hear me, ma'am? I can, sir. Great. On March 10, 2003, on Chris Matthews show NBC Hardball, 9 days before the Iraq war, you said, quote, "An American intervention will likely improve the lives of the Iraqis. Their lives could not get worse. I think it's quite safe to say." After that, working for Obama, you supported the Libyan intervention. You're a hardliner on Syria. You don't believe in any power sharing with Assad. You pointed out that your mother had to leave America to divorce her alcoholic husband. Are you ever going to divorce the warmongering neocons? Thank you so much, sir. So, first of all, I oppose the war in Iraq. Thank you for reading a partial quote, which is becoming a very, very common practice. Um, second of all, it sounds like you're uh, proposing power sharing with somebody who gassed his people. Uh that doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. Uh Assad is responsible for the deaths of 500,000 people. Oh, so do you want to go so to much. war? Do you want to go to war? You. Next thank you, question, sir. please. No, I don't thank want to you. go to war. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one thank question you. per person, please. Hi Samantha, great admirer of yours. Um my question is now that 
we were withdrawing from northeast Syria and we kind of abandoning the Kurds. Um, can you kind of like reflect on, you know, your experience with what you would have done differently with American power in Syria and moving forward with the next president, what they could do with American power in that region to make it more stable? Thank you, sir. Um, so I guess what I would say is that um, a lot is made, and I go in at great length in the book, to the question of the red line moment uh, for President Obama. And people define that moment differently, but um, in other words, pe- some people say he should have never issued the threat to say if you use chemical weapons, um, that'll be a red line. Others uh, believe that he should have never come out and said he was going to use force right after the gassing of 1400 civilians. I get into that and try to bring people into the situation room of how challenging it was for all of us, but particularly for him, given that we had almost no domestic support for using military force, in part because people are were so disillusioned by everything that had gone wrong in the logic to the lead up to and the execution of the invasion of Iraq in part because the war in Afghanistan at the time Assad gassed his people, had already then gone on 12 years, and we're now, of course, today at 18 years. So, you know, all of that is is in the book, but I actually think the when I look back, I wish that the kind of diplomacy that Secretary Kerry attempted in 2014, 15, 16, that we had gone for broke with that level of diplomacy in 2011, 12, before the war had factionalized, before foreign terrorist fighters came, before Assad was using chemical weapons routinely uh, against his people. And if you, it's so obvious, you think, well, why wouldn't that have happened? A major challenge was that we had no diplomatic dealings other than in a very, very low-key way on the nuclear file but we had no diplomatic dealings with Iran. And Iran was a major stakeholder. So to do that kind of diplomacy became possible after we had sort of broken the seal and broken with decades of history and established not diplomatic relations, but ties enough where Kerry could do what he did. And it didn't work in part because, again, I think things were too far gone. So that's one thing. And then second, you know, we, we, I haven't really commented or haven't commented here on just the grotesqueness, honestly, of the betrayal of the Kurds, who the, the president referred last week to the blood-stained sand of northern Syria in a way of just sort of dismissing it, just sand. And it is blood-stained sand because those fighters took 11,000 casualties to be ground force for the United States, so that our soldier, to the earlier question about the U.S. over-reliance on military force and war, the new way of trying to deal with or uh, with threats without having to put U.S. forces in, uh, in harm's way in a combat role has been to find ground partners. And so the way, in fact, of drawing down and of trying to get out of these wars, when the threats are real, because ISIS was a, a profound threat, to the American people was to develop these kinds of partnerships. And when you develop them, though, you have to keep your word. I do think alongside the partnership with the Syrian Kurds uh, that it, it would have been important. At one point, the Obama administration had a train and equip program uh, with Sunni, Syrian Sunni kind of opposition fighters. You can agree or disagree about whether that could have ever worked. But the one way it was never going to work 
was uh, we, in effect, the required people who were part of that program to agree to only fight ISIS and to have nothing to do with the Assad war. And the reason that would have been very difficult for them is most of them had loved ones killed or their homes burned and destroyed by barrel bombs or whatever else by the Assad regime. And so that led to having only one ground partner, the Kurds. But, I, I mean, given this administration, even if we'd had you know, a more diverse segment of the Syrian population fighting ISIS, I don't think that would have stopped President Trump from betraying them as well. Thank you for your question. We have time for one long one or two short ones. I believe there's a woman waiting in the back. And then, sir, if we have time, you'll be last. Hi, Samantha. Thank you for such an insightful and first-person book. I've really enjoyed it. And I saw your PowerPoint a few weeks ago with the big um, screen of all the problems in the world and the little, the tiny little power. Oh. And I was wondering how, in the fa- why, if if you will share, in the face of all that, you felt compelled to have biological children. Felt com- felt compelled to what? Bear children. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So first, some context for those of you who. So I. I mean, one of one of the, the the sort of themes that I that I'm trying to address in the book, and that I feel, I, I'm, maybe I'm just projecting what goes on in me. But the the slide you're talking about has a picture of President Xi and President Putin. It has uh, migrants in the Mediterranean on a boat. It has. RIP newspapers, a photo of like a, a, a cemetery and RIP, rest in peace newspapers. It has a thermometer showing climate change. It basically, I'm showing all the problems in the world. And then in this little slide that I've concocted, I have me in the corner <laughs> saying, but what can one person do? Um, and like I said, maybe I'm projecting, but that is, I think, how a lot of people feel uh, right now is just that the, it's just overwhelming. And so uh, the, the, in the, the book, the, 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 the spirit that I bring is encapsulated in a phrase that I've borrowed from a, a couple of gentlemen who wrote the book Switch, which is all about making social change when change is hard. The, the phrase is shrink the change. So in lieu of thinking, how am I going to solve the refugee crisis and the displacement of 70 million people around the world? Is there a refugee who's just arrived in Austin or in Boston who is landing in the least hospitable environment probably since, you know, arguably even since World War II when, when you know, people were trying to ensure that Jews were able to find refuge here. Can one give such a, an individual or such a family a ride to a school or to a job interview or bring them linens or tutor uh, because many of them are coming and not speaking English? And so it's just about how do you take the big thing, for example, that's on that PowerPoint and turn it into something small? Um, in ter- I guess I have a, a, another line in the in the book that I borrow from someone else. I'm not only borrowing, I promise. Uh, but it's such a good line. It's um, but from Amos Tversky, who was Daniel Kahneman's great partner in inventing kind of behavioral economics and behavioral science, and the field for which Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. But Amos Tversky passed away. But Amos was asked once uh, why he was an optimist, and this gets to you know I suppose why why one feels notwithstanding all those problems, one can go forward. And Amos's answer was, why would I be a pessimist? If you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. <laughs> Which is on one level like, 
the darkest, probably on one level as dark a, a thing as you can say. But but so for me, I guess I just I'm not giving up. I don't think we have reason to give up. I think. You know, whether it's uh, seeing what young people are doing on climate science, bringing it into the heart of politics for the first time. I was just in Idaho last week, by the way. The governor of Idaho, uh, a Republican, you know, he came out in public not that long ago and was totally unshy about talking about the catastrophic effects of climate change on workers' lives in Idaho, whether that's farmers or the ski industry or whatever. And he just says, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when we used to have winters in in Idaho. And so things that feel like they're trending inexorably in one direction, I guess to me just never feel, both when they're going well, I'm always waiting for the you know, something to happen and something to change. But also in moments like this, uh, you can see all of the activation that has been incited by the debasement of the highest office in the land, uh, by the corruption, by the abandonment of our allies, and by the abandonment of human rights, by the neglect of science. People are moved by this. And I was in Collin County last night uh, where there, the Democrat dinner, and I can tell you, even places like Collin County, who have not been able to score the big win, they're, they're, they're a hair away. Uh, and as, as, as the head of the Democrats said to me, it's not about persuasion, it's just about turnout in terms of where, we're gonna, where, where we need to get. And so if it's just about turnout, that's on us. And so I, I want my kids to be part of the turnout effort. <laughs> Thank you. It's up to you, it's up to you. Sir, thank you for your patience. Please ask your question. Uh, afternoon, Ambassador. Um, I'm always impressed with the bona fides of the people in the Foreign Service. It seems like we have some really qualified people. And I'm wondering from the inside, if you can give a sense of how the institutional knowledge kind of evaporates in some of our foreign policy decisions. I think about arming the Mujahideen. I think about overturning the Iranian democratic election. I mean, you can go back to Dulles and banana republic politics. This institutional knowledge, I think, is there, but it doesn't ever seem to rear up when we need that insight. Can you speak to that? It's a, it's, uh, a great question. I'd say I have a few associations. Number one, there's an applied history initiative being run out of uh, the Harvard Kennedy School and I think out of Stanford. A number of uh, historians are involved, but about just really asking a version of your question, which is how can history and all the knowledge that exists in books and minds around our country but better get injected uh, into government decision-making? And, th- and that was true, I should say, well before President Trump and the, the larger... Your, your point was valid in the Obama years, you know, well before... It, uh, in the sense that those perspectives are just are, are no more than the perspectives of, of uh, the uh, you know that offer some of the human consequences of decision making. You're fighting a fair amount of gravity to bring those into the rooms where decisions are made, even if you don't have again a president like Trump. So, so your your point I think is an evergreen point, and there's an initiative aimed at at resolving that, which could involve things like fellowships, also for for people who actually, you know, are more steeped in the history to be part of uh, government decision-making and vice versa, government decision-makers getting time to leave to go and really steep themselves in the history, et cetera. So that's just one thing you might want to look into. Second, though, 
uh, I mean, people in the government are, are really smart uh, and very knowledgeable of history, and they're, they're very, many of them are extremely booky and have that kind of insight to bring to bear. But you do, in any institution, have to have somebody at the head of the table who's interested in, in hearing it. And, you know, sometimes there's a peril. There's a peril in historical analogy. In other words, like, I'm a history major and a great believer in history and its utility, but, you know, the old Mark Twain uh, expression about the cat who sits on the hot stove, you know, he, he, when he sits on the hot stove and he gets burned, he's not going to sit on the hot stove again, but he's not also going to sit on any stove again, right? And so figuring out how to learn from history, um, but not Robert Jarvis's work uh, at Columbia, you know, talks about the peril of analogy where Vietnam became all about Munich, um, you know, Iraq became uh, all about, you know, how easy it had been, allegedly easy in, in Bosnia, in East Timor, in these totally not analogous geopolitical circumstances. And so you just have to be a little bit careful also about the misappropriation of analogy. Um, and I think what one learns from history is it's almost like a, set, a heuristic of this, the kinds of questions you need to drill into that are very case and time and culture uh, specific. And, and so that's what, you know, in seeing how mistakes are made in the past, I think that's, it's a set of questions that you can bring to the, to the next crisis or to the next set of circumstances. But above all, you've got to want to have a cacophony of voices who come from different walks of life and bring different forms of expertise in your decision-making process. And that's what we have to get back to. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The book is for sale. Samantha Power will be signing books in the tent immediately after this. It's called The Education of an Idealist. Pick it up. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. It means a lot to me. Thank you. That was Ambassador Samantha Power, author of The Education of an Idealist, live at the Texas Book Festival. One thing we didn't have time to discuss was something I mentioned to her in the green room, which was that all the major outlets that reviewed The Education of an Idealist seemed to give it to male reviewers, who tended to focus on policy and politics. It seemed to be lost that this is a deeply human humanitarian autobiography, and I'm so grateful to her for sharing so much of her story with me and the audience that day. After the break, we'll hear from our editors with their top picks in books this week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Marnie Sluman Somers, a freelance writer, inherited the unfinished manuscript of The Amulet from her mother, Norma Sluman, a Canada-based author, before her death in 1993. Since then, Marnie's edited and published her mother's story. The Amulet, which takes place on the Canadian prairies in the late 1800s, follows Catherine, who moves to Pounding Lake in the district of Saskatchewan from Ontario to live with her new husband, veteran trader Ian McNabb. The book covers political tensions, community relationships, and Catherine's complicated marriage. Our reviewer calls it a love story that remains gripping until the very last page. In this sponsored interview, we talk with Marnie about the book. My name is Katerina Pappas, and I work in the indie department. Marnie, welcome to Fully Booked. 
Thank you very much, Katerina. It's a pleasure to be with you today. What prompted you to edit and publish your mother's unfinished manuscript? Well, as you may know, the manuscript was left to me by my late mother. She had asked me to retype the manuscript in digital format so it could be submitted to her traditional publisher. And at the time, I didn't make the time to do it. Although I had read the book and thought it was a very good story, uh, I had put it on the shelf. And then when she passed... Um, I felt very badly that I had let her down, and, and it bothered me for a number of years afterwards. Then, when we became, uh, when it, when I became aware that the publishing industry had changed dramatically since her days, then I thought that I could do this as a self-published book and and bringing forward this important historical event on her behalf. And will you tell us about what went into editing your mother's book? The major challenge we faced at, uh, with editing this book. Uh, was that the time period in in which the story takes place and the events take place is um, the the terminology used to address Indigenous peoples was very uncomplimentary. And we didn't want to perpetuate those kinds of of, um, negative terminology used. So it was a matter of deciding how to do that, how to change that, without destroying the fact that this is a historically um, st- historically important story. So what we decided to do was to leave the dialogue between the characters as it would have been in spoken in the 1880s, and then to uh, change the narrative to reflect um, the sensitivities of today's uh, terminology for Indigenous peoples or First Nations peoples in Canada. Mm-hmm. And are you working on anything new now? Yes, uh, we are republishing or reissuing my mother's first two books, one of which was uh, her first book was Blackfoot Crossing, and the second book was Poundmaker, and they will be released soon in uh, digital format. They were previously only in print format, and uh, they will they have also been edited with the same sensibilities in towards the uh, indigenous people of Canada. Marnie, thanks so much for talking with us about your book. If you're just joining the podcast, you can find The Amulet at online retailers and by request at your local bookstore. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have children's editor Vicki Smith. YA editor Laura Simeon, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with children's, Vicki, what have you selected for us? This week I have Allies by Alan Gratz. Mm. And I know a lot of people um, on this podcast were big fans of Refugee, which came out a couple of years ago. And it was a really ambitious story of three refugees at different points in history and their stories. Incredibly moving. And this is another ambitious story about multiple people, only what what Gratz is looking at is the D-Day invasion in Normandy, and he's looking at six different characters and the parts that they play in this invasion. And he's so good about trying to expand the narrative from the, the stories that we're accustomed to hearing over and over again and bring in the marginalized people who were there also but are too often ignored. And so he sets up this 
this six-voiced narrative with a an Algerian woman, a white Canadian um, soldier, a Cree First Nation soldier who's also from Canada, a uh, black American medic, a French woman, a Jewish uh, American, and then a German American who's trying to hide his identity from his American peers. And mm. it's, you know, he moves back and forth and really gives readers a sense of what it might have been like. It's sort of pre-Saving Private Ryan only with a much more inclusive cast. Um, and, you know, he does it again. Thanks, Vicki. Listening to you talk about that, I was thinking about how many books I get on the nonfiction side about World War II and specifically D-Day. Frankly, way too many and more than I can handle. I wonder, like this book, the age range is 8 to 12. Is it is it getting those marginalized stories that makes it so good for that age group? I mean, how do you make a book about, you know, this kind of subject matter appeal to, say, an 8 or 9-year-old? He obviously does it. Well... He does. I mean, he does it with with great characterizations. You know, and one of the challenges there there, there are not tons of D Day books for for kids. Um, right. So partly there's 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 novelty on its side, um, but it's hard when you're writing middle grade novels, um, middle grade historical fiction about events that children really couldn't be part of. Um, so you have to find soldiers who are young. You know, they they enlist when they you know, when they are at their youngest possible moment to to enlist um, so that you can sort of bridge that gap between actual middle graders and the young adults who are your protagonists. Right. Um, but he's also just really good at characterization. And, you know, D-Day is an exciting moment. So it may be old hat to readers of adult history, but it's not old hat for kids. And so you've got this inherently exciting, dangerous, scary, big historical moment. And when you populate it with these really interesting characters who who put you there on the beach, um, it, it, it's really kind of hard to imagine why people aren't trying to do it more, but they really aren't. Um, and I never really thought about that until you just brought it up. I mean, Ashley Bryan's memoir uh, is about his experiences uh, landing at North, well, in 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 the U.S. Army, but it's you know, sort of the capstone is his landing in Normandy. But I can't think of any recent books that have kid characters, you know, in, in combat situations. You know, there are lots of books about child characters in in the Holocaust, so it's sort of adjacent, mm-hmm. but. But there just isn't that much. So maybe it's novelty. Maybe it's that people love refugees and they are buying this book, but they're not going to be disappointed. I guess is the final final answer that to a long and rambling. Well, no, that was an ex- excellent explanation of why it works. And I'm glad you mentioned Ashley Bryan's memoir as well. I am among the aforementioned fans of Refugee. Huge, huge fan of that book, and I really can't wait to read this one. Thank you, Vicki. Um, the title is Allies. It's by Alan Gratz. Next, we have YA. Laura, what have you chosen for us? So this week we have an anthology and it's edited by Sangu Mandana and it's called Color Outside the Lines Stories About Love. And it features 16 short stories by well-known YA authors like Anna Marie McLemore, L.L. McKinney, Adam Silvera, covers a range of genres. And there's this very poignant introductory note where um, Sangu Mandana talks about being 
in her hometown of Norwich, England. She's she's originally from Bangalore in India, but she was in a restaurant with her husband and their three kids. And she's in an interracial marriage. And the waiter asked, would you like to pay separately? And it sort of made her realize, you know, wow, in so many ways, we're just an ordinary family with ordinary concerns. But then every now and then you, you're sort of hit by how the rest of the world sees you and, you know, different things that you have to deal with. So this collection, um, it's sort of a, a tribute to, you know, just being in love. She says, um, it's about race, it's about being different from the person you love, how it can matter and also not matter. And it's also a collection of stories about young, fierce, brilliantly hopeful characters of all colors. And it's just a wonderful um, anthology. And I'm a big fan of short stories. And um, one of the stories that really jumped out and stayed with me is by Samira Ahmed. And it's set around 1919 in colonial India. Um, it's called The Agony of a Heart's Wish. And it's just about this brief encounter between this Urdu-speaking Indian girl and an Irish soldier. And of course, this during colonial times. And so initially she sees him, the white, you know, in her mind, white British colonizer. But then she realizes, wait, you know, he's Irish. He's colonized as well by the English. And they're on this train to the Himalayas and they both love poetry. And so it's this kind of brief encounter with, with a very poignant ending. But it's a lovely anthology and I would recommend it for anybody who appreciates multicultural stories or romance or just, yeah, great, great book. You know, Laura, one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know if it's, if I've just sort of been snoozing and and I'm only just waking up. But it seems to me that sort of parallel with the industry's commitment to publishing diverse authors and diverse stories is this sort of renewed interest in publishing anthologies. And I really like that. I think that anthologies can sort of have a bad rap. You know, for for readers who are novel inclined a short story collection can be very frustrating because, you know, you 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 get involved in these characters and you, you start to love them and then boom, all of a sudden, 20 pages later, the story ends and you have to get accustomed to other characters. But in terms of providing entrees for readers who aren't, you know, who don't have the time to commit to a novel, it seems to me that this sort of flourishing of anthologies is a great idea. You know, you think about high school students and they're so busy. Mm-hmm. And you know, in addition to sort of the the stereotypical reluctant reader, there's also really, you know, able readers who may have been able to sit down with a novel when they were in elementary school or middle school, but they can't in high school. So I'm really glad Mm -hmm. that we are seeing these excellent anthologies coming out for those kids who just don't have the time, but want the stories. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I actually just wrote a column that was a tribute to anthologies in the end, um, because also coming from a school library background, I saw how much teachers appreciate them. You know, you can, sometimes you have 15, 20 minutes to fill. You need to do something with your class, you know, for whatever reason, you can read them a story or you have the kid who finishes their test early. You can say, okay, you know, read this. If you need to introduce a unit and you need to, you know, you want to sort of get everybody on the same page with some introductory reading, everyone reading a short story works in the way that everybody reading a novel doesn't. Yeah. It introduces kids to lots of different authors. So then they can say, oh, I really liked, you know, that one. I want to see what else this person's written. I agree. I think they're they're wonderful. And we've been getting more and more really strong ones with very diverse themes, which is great. 
Laura's pick for the week is called Color Outside the Lines, Stories About Love, edited by Sangu Mandana. Thank you, Laura. Turning now to nonfiction, we have Eric's choice. What you got? My choice this week is the new book by New Yorker contributor Ronan Farrow. Um, His book, War on Peace, um, was very uh, well-received in 2018. And, of course, he's one of our most promising young investigative journalists. He's only 31, and he's pretty much mastered the art. And his latest is called Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. And it's basically the story of how he exposed Harvey Weinstein as a serial sexual predator. And it's just unbelievable the 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 legwork that he did. And it's it's very interesting to see the powers that be, especially at NBC, were constantly trying to stonewall him and get him to get off this story and basically protecting all these predators, not just, you know, Harvey Weinstein, but he also goes into Matt Lauer and Donald Trump. And it also talks about how he eventually had to take his story to the New Yorker because David Remnick was the only one who would let him kind of do it as he should do it. And so it's a really good, I would say, take this book and pair it with She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tui, and you kind of get to what I think are probably going to be classics of investigative journalism that really illuminate this entire Me Too movement and everything surrounding it and kind of the genesis of it and how it's progressed and how it's overcome so many unbelievably powerful obstacles. I haven't read either of these books yet, but they sound so interesting and I really am looking forward to reading them. But the the thing that seems so interesting to me about them right at this moment is that as much as being about what they're about, the, you know, Harvey Weinstein case and everything surrounding that that's happened. They're about, you know, how the reporters did the investigative journalism, you know, sort of like all the president's men, you know, was a story about how Woodward and Bernstein got the story as much or more than it was about what happened in Watergate. And especially with what's going on in Washington today, which isn't what these two books are about, but it just seems like a great time to go back and have a book like all the president's men that, you know, shows you the importance of supporting investigative journalists who, you know, can spend months and years on a story mm-hmm. and really, you know, f- you know how they go out and find these sources and get them to talk to them and get them to put their names on the record and, you know, you know show people who are being fed. I mean, I guess people that are, you know, watching television channels that are constantly feeding them a stream of, um, lies and trying to convince people that the rest of the news is fake news probably won't pick up this book, but it's really valuable, I think, to have these books out there showing people how journalists go about making the sausage. Yeah, for sure. It's it's very heartening to know that that there's still these kind of these unbelievably dedicated reporters who go, you know, to whatever lengths to get the actual story. And it's funny you mentioned Bob Woodward, because our reviewer said this book and she said, he said, both books are top-notch accounts filled with timeless insights about investigative journalism on a par with classics from Seymour Hirsch and Bob Woodward. Mm, yeah, definitely. The title is Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators by Ronan Farrow. Thank you, Eric. Next, we have fiction. Lori, what's your choice this week? Uh, my choice is Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert. This is a book that I think has been really hotly anticipated in the world of romance readers. Hibbert is 23 years old. 
She is a black British woman and she has already written, I'm not sure exactly how many, but more than a dozen books and she self-published them all. So she's already gotten a big following in the romance world. And this is her first book to be published by a big mainstream press and Avon is really getting behind it. And I've been hearing people talking about it for a long time. And it is a really funny and heartfelt, just charming romance. It's about um, a girl, a woman named Chloe Brown, who is a freelance website designer who has fibromyalgia, which is a chronic condition that leaves her in chronic pain. So she has just moved out of her parents' house. She wants to be a bit more independent. She gets an apartment and she realizes that she's hardly ever leaving it. She's just inside on the computer all the time. So she makes herself a list of risky adventures that she wants to try to you know, force herself to do, not like a bucket list, like things I want to do in my life, but things I want to do right now to kind of kickstart her life. So as she's in the process of doing one of these, she runs into her building super, a guy named Red Morgan, who little does Chloe know is a a painter who used to live in London and he was being quite successful, but he had been living with a sort of a uh, London socialite who was very emotionally abusive to him, was always telling him that he was unimportant and a terrible artist. And so he's being acting as the super for the building where Chloe lives. And the two of them, you know, as happens in many romances, they start out antagonizing each other. And, you know, they don't know what's behind the masks that they each put on. And while Chloe is following her list of adventures, they kind of interact and, of course, start to like each other and just have a lovely kind of funny, warm uh, romance. Chloe finds herself stuck up a tree because she's climbed up there with great pain to rescue a kitten that she sees up there. So Red sees her up there and, and helps her come down, which it's very difficult for her to admit that she needs help. And so eventually he realizes that she is in terrible pain, even though she's not saying anything. So that kind of bursts their the shells that they each have around each other. And he agrees to let her keep the kitten, even though pets are not allowed in the building and he he won't tell anybody. And in order to thank him for that, she agrees to create a website for his art. So they get to know each other and they spend time together. And it's just a charming kind of antagonists to lovers kind of relationship. Um, Hibbert has spoken a lot about how she really wanted to write a book about not only a black British woman, Chloe is also a fat woman, which is a word that she uses in the book. And she's a woman with chronic pain. She wants to, you know, give a happy ever after to women, a woman in all of these categories of uh, women that don't often get a happy ending. And she wants to be very inclusive. I think all of her different books have heroines and heroes from all different traditionally neglected groups. So. It's great to have her in the romance world. And I think that this book is going to be a big sensation. And Laurie, I enjoyed the review of this book. I noticed it talked a lot about how um, it's so funny. I think you used the word hilarious. And I have not read a lot of romance, and but I love humor. And I was curious, Are I, I tend to think of romance as kind of a serious genre. Would you say there are a lot of funny romance novels? I think, you know, I think there's been a bit of a renaissance 
lately of people in the romance world writing, you know, what they might label romantic comedies. That genre isn't as popular in the movies as it used to be, but there have mm-hmm. always been certain, you know, genre of what I hate to call women's fiction, but that's, you know, what how the publishing industry would think of it. That's like romantic comedy mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't necessarily be shelved in the romance section, but those two categories are kind of merging a bit. So yeah, there are there are certainly some out there. That's good. I'll have to check them out. I can send you some titles. Oh, please do. <laughs> the title of this one is Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and it's by Talia Hibbert. Thank you, Lori, for the pick. That does it for another episode of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be Jody Adams Kirshner, author of Broke, Hardship and Resilience in a City of Broken Promises. The city is Detroit, and it's her thorough investigation of the consequences of Detroit's declaration of bankruptcy in 2013. So look forward to hearing what she has to say next week. Until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.